Blog Talk Radio. But we are making a stand and we're waking everybody up that 9-11 was an inside job. And you are the minority. You are the cowards who don't know the truth. You're the people that serve this evil system. You're the people that serve a system that hurts innocent men, women, and children. Not just Iraqis, not just Afghans, not just Africans, but the people right here in this nation. You serve a new world order that attacks and feeds on you. And I'm here to tell you that you will be defeated. Your hours are numbered. We've got the energy. We've got the life force. All you've got is evil backing you up. All you've got is greed. I'm not going to look at yourself in the mirror. Because deep down, the New World Order is a pot-bellied, chicken-necked ninny. And all the armor and all the weapons are nothing. You are nothing compared to good. You are nothing compared to life. And you will be defeated. I want the individuals out there, I want free humanity to turn themselves loose, to cut the chains loose, and to use the end of that chain to slap the new world order right upside the head. You've got the power. You want to know who can defeat the new world order? It is you. You're the individuals that are going to be able to defeat this system. You're the individuals that are going to be able to take down the new world order. It doesn't matter if Ron Paul wins. It doesn't matter if they rig the election. What matters is, is that we're starting to stand up. We're starting to move. We're starting to find our legs. We're starting to build our muscles. We're starting to realize that we do have power, and we can work together, and we can take action, and that the naysayers are a pack of weak liars who have never had any successes in their life and who are upset and frustrated to see us beginning to have victories against tyranny. They don't have any respect for themselves. They don't have any vision. And they don't have any will. And they sure don't have any of the power that shines out of God's soul and energizes all life in the universe. They have wed themselves to death. And they will crumble, and they will fall, and for eternity we wed ourselves to life, and to everything good, and everything that flows from it. All right, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, World War II here, and uh, a little story here. One of my most heart-rending experiences during the war was in a little town in Germany that we thought was perfectly safe. And my assistant gunner, Albert Thiel, was with me, and we were sitting on the the edge of a foxhole. Uh, He had gotten a letter from his wife with a photograph of his two young children, and he handed it to me. And I looked at it, and I thought it was just a very typical American family, and he was very happy to have that picture of them. And just as I was handing it back to him, a mortar shell exploded just outside our foxhole, and a piece of it hit me in the leg, and it caused a burn. Shrapnel uh, hit, hit hit him full blast, 
and just shredded him. He just took his head off, and, and I didn't really stop and look at it. I just crawled out of the foxhole and went down to the aid station to see if they could do anything for my leg. But uh, I felt so bad about that because war was almost over. It was just within weeks of, of the German surrender. It was just a terribly tragic thing to have have that happen. But I'm sure that his last thought was of his little family back in Louisiana. I remember one time <clears throat> we were in a forest, and there was a... <clears throat> what they called a fire break. So if a fire force got on fire, these breaks would be wide enough. They were probably uh, probably about the length of a football field. We came up on this one, the whole squad did, and we wanted to cross it, and we came with the idea of what would be the best way to cross it. Would we all go at once, and then if you shot, you'd probably get one of us. And if we went one at a time, you'd have to shoot at each one of us. And probably losing a target that way, you wouldn't have much chance. So anyway, we made the decision to go one at a time. So the first one went across, and then the next one came right after him. And by that time, then he had to load his gun again and take the aim and shoot at him. Well, he missed him. And then he'd have to work his gun again and take a shot at the next one. He missed him, worked the gun again five times, I think, no, six times. There was one in the chamber on fire, and he had six times to get us, but he didn't get any of us. So that was a sniper, but uh, about the only time I had a sniper. There was quite a bit of fighting going in a place called the Hurtgen Forest. That's H-U-E-R-T-G-E-N, the Hurtgen Forest, and that was in uh, Belgium. And we went in there, and... Uh, it was just a real dark, tree-shaded place. There had been some fighting there before. But the way we went through it, they would take a, bring a tank in, and then they would spray the area with 50 caliber machine gun fire to keep the Germans down. And we would go through and try to occupy it, and, uh, and uh, it was just uh, quite a bit of uh, firing going on there. The worst part about it was they, the Germans would fire mortar shells and they would set the fuses so that the shells would go off when they would hit uh, trees, the tops of trees. And that shrapnel then would just spray down over the ground. I never got hit by any of it, but I was awful close to it most of the time. But that was the big danger going through there. After we'd been in there for several days, I don't know how long, we uh, came to the edge of it, and there was a little town over there. So we went into that town, and there was a building that had been damaged some by artillery fire, and we moved in there because it was still habitable. We could still live in there. And then in the morning, I woke up, and I had some sea rations, so I opened them for my breakfast. And uh, as I was eating my breakfast, a German plane came over. And during the night, two tanks had rolled up on either side of that building. And that German warplane strafed those tanks first thing in the morning. Well, one of the bullets came through the bore above me, and it pierced the edge of my helmet 
and sprayed my face with fragments of shrapnel, probably from my helmet, maybe from the bullet, and it tore a gash in my right ear. I was just uh, losing a lot of blood at that time. My ears really bled when they were wounded. So they took me to the uh, battalion aid station, and the doctor there looked at it, and he said, we can't do anything here. He put a big uh, bandage over my ear to keep it from bleeding, and they loaded me onto a Jeep. And there was uh, four of us, I think, on the Jeep. There was one laying on the hood on a stretcher and two of us sitting in the back and then the driver. And they <clears throat> took us out to where they could put us on an ambulance. The ambulance took us to uh, Liège, Belgium, where there was a 77th evacuation field hospital set up. It was sort of like the MASH hospitals that you see on television. <laughs> and uh, they took us in there. Uh, when they saw the wounds I had, they sent me to a plastic surgery section. So he explained what he was going to do. He was going to deaden that area with local anesthetic, and then he would dig out those little uh, uh, pieces of shrapnel that were in my face, and they would do the uh, wound in my ear. They would suture it up so it would heal up. After we'd been there about, uh, I'd say, eight or ten days, the uh, German counteroffensive through the Ardennes uh, exploded. And, of course, the troops were being driven back. And so they very quickly took my stitches out, gave me a new helmet and a new rifle, and sent me back to the front. And then at day... Your D-Day jump, what do you remember about that? Can't forget it. D Day? Holy mackerel, what a nightmare. The flak. The only reason you dodge the flak is you pull the riser and spill the air so you fall faster. So you, you dodge that flak. If you sit, hang up there, they're going to kill you. So you pull that and you fall like you're, there's no shoot. And then you get about. 50, 100 feet from the ground and let go, and it stops your descent enough to, to, to land. But we were lucky. Hey, there were 48 of us, and four came back. Warning. The frontline testimony you're about to hear is, at times, extremely graphic. The realities of war are often difficult, but it's vitally important that these stories are told and the lessons are learned. Your discretion is advised. Where did you go for basic training? Basic training was in, uh, where was it, my basic training? Camp Roberts. Near San Luis Obispo? Yeah. Camp Roberts, yeah. And it was there that you joined the paratroopers? No, I had to take basic training first there, uh -huh. and then I went to the paratroopers. I thought that was uh, more glamorous, more exciting, more. Uh, I wanted. To, I didn't want to fight and have some bomb blow me up. I want to fight the Germans man to man. I was a young man, you know. I heard that in Italy you got buried alive. I did. What can you talk to me about? What happened? 
Well, there was a, an Italian garrison, a great big red brick building that the Italians had their soldiers uh, put in there. It was a barracks for the Italian soldiers. And when we took over that, we took over that building and we, we were there. I had a little bunk there and, you know, and then one, I think it was some Sunday morning, all of a sudden the building blew up and I was buried alive. This is it. You know, I was saying my prayers and I was like this as the building went, you know, and I was buried just like this. And my buddies uncovered me eventually. And uh, I could hear hear them, you know, and I'd yell. I could, you know, I couldn't move my mouth, but I could, you know, make noise. And eventually they uncovered me. And uh, I went to the hospital. I was on a stretcher, and I remember I was on a floor in the hall, and I threw up, and it was a lot of fun. There must have been a lot of layers of, what, concrete on top of you, or... What kind of material was it? Oh, red brick building. And it was uh, big, heavy walls mm. the Italians made uh, for their uh, soldiers. It was a barracks for the Italian soldiers. Did you become unconscious at any time, or you were, you were conscious? The entire... I was conscious, yeah. And you thought you were going to die in there? Why, sure. How long did it take them? <laughs> I didn't have my watch on, and if I just... <laughs> It, it felt like six months, but, <laughs> you know, I didn't think they'd ever get to me. But I could hear them digging, and eventually they got to me and covered a leg and then uh, uh, went the rest of the body and got me, and I went to a hospital. They had me on a stretcher, and they didn't have room for me in a bed. They just stuck me in the hall. I remember I threw up in the hall on the stretcher. What was the cause of the... What was my what? What was the cause for the building to... The, the cause of the explosion? Damn, I... Germans? Sure. We don't blow our own people up. <laughs> no, I know that, but they were that close to you guys? Yeah, it was a time bomb that they set that they tied it to some of those bunks in the basement. And after about 50 bunks went out, the thing was tied to one of those bunks, and it blew everything up. So they put this time bomb as they were retreating? They, they put the time bomb there as they were retreating? They, were, they retreated and left the time bomb behind. For you? Thanks. <laughs> so how long did it take you to recuperate after that? I don't remember, but it was months. You were heavily injured? For weeks, I don't remember. Do you remember what kind of injuries you had? I remember being in the hospital, and then they didn't have room, and they put us in a tent in the hospital. Mm. And the German Stukers would dive bomb us, uh, even though we had big crosses out to tell them it was a hospital, they still bombed us. Yeah. So... This was in Italy. After that, did you go back to fight in Italy, or was your next jump in D-Day? It wasn't D-Day ahead of this. No. I guess I went back, back to the States. 
China. Take your time. No, Africa. I think we went from Africa. Yeah, Africa to Italy. Yeah, and then we went DJ. And uh, well, so what I'm saying, so after you got buried alive, yeah, did you uh, go back and fight in Italy, or your next jump was on D-Day? I don't remember. I didn't actually fight in, in Italy. I, uh, they had me in the hospital. I was all torn up. From the building falling? Yeah. Yeah, I had one leg. It was bad. They look pretty good to me. Now, yeah. They healed. Only took 70 years. God bless them. So I was in, I think one of them was in a cast for I don't know how long when I got, well, you know. So then you're shipped over to England. Yeah. What's happening in England? We were chasing all the girls. Besides that? Happening like what? We trained. Yeah, at first they gave us a little time off, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever it was, and then we're right, we had replacements come in. You know what replacements are? And uh, the replacements, we would try and teach them, and we trained together and learned each other's habits, and, and uh, they would learn our commands, and then we went back into combat. How do you guys treat the new guys coming in? How did what? How do you guys treat the replacements? How do we treat them? Uh, we tried to treat them good, but they were frightened, you know. When you dropped on Salerno Beach, do you remember the drop? Sure. What do you remember about it? I ended up in the hills. I mean, but was there a lot of black? Oh, yeah, the, the Italian, the... the uh, the planes, our ships were in the harbor there, and they would try and blow them up. They'd come by and drop all kinds of stuff, you know. So, but as you were dropping down on the parachute drop, I mean, was it was it at night or was it during the day? I'm trying to think now. I think during the day. I think that was a day jump. I've forgotten. It could be at night. So... Back to England, though. So you guys are training in England. Is it obvious that you guys are going to invade France? I didn't hear that. Is it obvious that you guys are going to end up invading France? Oh, I I didn't feel that way. I, I We had no idea. We just took our commands from our, our officers and did what we had to do, but we had no idea where we'd end up. We just all hoped we'd live. Tell me about the D-Day jump. So I know before D-Day, there was a few other times that you guys were about to go over there, but they canceled last minute. Yeah, we practiced and practiced. And we had uh, jumps. Uh, we, we jumped uh, in, in the States. And uh, we trained. And... Uh, And when we jumped, it was spooky. You don't know what you're going to land on, water, land. How long does it usually take for you? How long? Well, when we jump, we jump as close to the land as we can. 
and it's it's uh, about two three hundred feet is all it is from the plane to the ground because they do that we do that purposely so we don't hang in the air and get shot. It's bad enough to hang in the air that long, so we, the planes would drop us low. And your D-Day jump, what do you remember about that? Can't forget it. D-Day? Holy mackerel, what a nightmare. D-Day jump. I'm trying to think. I, I can't think right now. I don't know. Where did we land D-Day, in Salerno? No, where Normandy. Normandy. On the beach? I forgot now. I think it was the incident where you were stranded for like 10 days. You I think I landed in a tree. You and two other guys, no food, no water in the field? Oh, yeah, in the wheat field. Is it, was that D-Day? Yeah, that was after D-Day. And, and then we got wiped out, except for us. We hid in that wheat field. And we killed a few Germans on the way. But then we were outnumbered, and we got in the middle of a wheat field. We just stayed right there. We had our rations and a canteen of water. We ran out of water. and When it rained, we opened our raincoat and kept some water in it. And put it in our canteen, and we survived. This was your D-Day jump, or this was? I think it was D-Day. I forgot which jump that was. So explain to me, you guys are hiding in a wheat field? Yeah. How are you hiding? In the wheat. Laying down? Yeah. We weren't standing up. <laughs> what would you do for food? We brought our own. Our, our own rations. How long did you survive like this? I think it was five days. I've forgotten now. I may have it written all down somewhere, but I think it was five days. Let's see, D-Day was what date? June 6th. Did you say Tuesday? June 6th. 26th. June 6th. Oh, yeah, of course, June 6th. Yeah, June 6th. Oh, my God, what a date. How could I forget? June 6th is D-Day. I can't remember. But we were lucky. Hey, there were 48 of us and four came back. Two were with me. Could you guys sit out in that field? Yeah, 48 went in and four came back and two were with me. Three guys. The other one was the commanding officer, and 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 some some French people hit him. But he'd have never made it. What do you remember on D-Day and the jump into France? Is there anything that you remember about the flak? I mean, what was it like? Sure, I remember the flak. The only reason you dodged the flak is you pull the riser and spill the air so you fall faster. So you, you dodge that flak. If you sit hang up there, they're going to kill you. So you pull that and you fall like you're, there's no shoot. And then you get about 
50, 100 feet from the ground and lets go and it stops your descent enough to do the land. Explain to me when you're on the C-47, on the way to the drop zone, yeah. what's going on in your head? In my head? That's a good question. I don't remember back that far, but I was always thinking about did I bring the right equipment with me and, and uh, you know, you're thinking about all, all of the right things and you wonder what's going to happen and you want to get out of the plane. The flak's coming up and, and you want to jump and get going. And eventually they stand up and stand in the door. That was the command. Hook up. You take your your the parachute and a thing you hook up. When you jump, it would pull the chute open. You know how that worked? Yeah. So when they say stand in the door, you would shuffle up to the door, and then the command was go, and we'd all go. And uh, when you're floating in the air and they're shooting at you, it's no fun. So you grab the risers and spill the air so you go down faster and you don't get shot at. So uh, you do all you can to stay alive. Five by five and still alive. And you told me that uh, you jumped into Normandy with dynamite. Yeah, I was a demolition man. I trained with dynamite and how to blow up things and how much to use on a train and how much to use. So for for, for D-Day, uh, what was the ideal situation? What was your objective on that day? I I can't remember now. I think blow a bridge up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we blew it. I think we blew a bridge up. Now, for paratroopers, you guys are dropped into a zone. And after that, are you treated like regular infantrymen? Exactly. Exactly, infantrymen. That's all we were once we were on the ground. Yeah, no, you can't jump twice. (laughs) Can you talk to me about some of your most frightening experiences during World War II? Yeah, I think being buried alive was frightening. Because when you're buried alive and you don't realize what's going on, the building blew up and you're in it. And all of a sudden you're covered head to toe and you say to yourself, what's the matter? I'm alive. And you start to struggle. And the more you struggle, the tighter it got. So you don't struggle anymore. If you try and move a little, it would the earth or whatever was around you would tighten in. And, and it was no fun. <laughs> were you the only casualty, or were there other guys that got hurt? Were there other, yeah, were other paratroopers with me? In the building? Sure. What other frightening experiences? What other frightening experiences? We got a couple hours? <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of them now, but we had plenty of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you go on a patrol, and uh, it was crazy the things that we did, and 
And, and after a while, I thought I was nuts to join the paratroopers. The things that we did were unconscious. What do you mean? Well, the, the missions that we had, the, two men go down there, down the tracks, and if they get shot at, come back. <laughs> you know, crazy things. Well, what do you say some were some of the hardest things that you had to endure? Well, I think being without food and water and having a special impregnated uniform on that doesn't breathe and all you do is sweat and, and uh, having no food, no water, uh, it was a little spooky. But out of 48 men, three of us made it, myself and two men. Did you think you would survive the war? Did I think I'd survive the war? Certain times I didn't, and certain times I did. It would depend on what was going on. Talk to me about the times that you didn't. Didn't think so? Well, in the middle of a wheat field with a bunch of Germans looking for you and shooting all over. They were looking for you guys. They were shooting. They were shooting the hedgerows. You know what a hedgerow is? But we were in the middle of the hedgerows. Nobody would go there. We were trying to get to a hedgerow, but the Germans came, so we dived in the wheat. And they didn't do anything. You know, they shot a little bit out there, but they didn't hit us. And so we were lucky. That's all. How did you finally escape that situation? How did I find what? Finally escape that situation. I don't understand what you're saying. How did you get out of the wheat field? Somebody came and dragged us out. We couldn't walk. We were so weak and so hungry and so thirsty, and we were so skinny. We were 48 men, and four came back. They all were in the wheat field? No. Oh, the wheat field, yeah. There were three of them with me. What do you remember about Operation Market Garden? The drum, the, the, day, the daytime drop in Holland? In Holland, I remember I dropped in Holland. I jumped in Holland. What do you remember about it? I'm trying to think. Because that was a daytime drop. That's different than your other drop. Oh, yeah, it was scary. Uh, I don't know. We had some kind of skirmishes on the, when we jumped and we were shooting the the Germans, and they were shooting us, and eventually we made it up. I don't remember now. Is this going on now, this camera? Yeah. Do you want me to turn it off? Well, I don't care. I just wonder. <laughs> you forget about it after a while. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can sell all that. <laughs> can you talk to me about some of your most memorable instances in combat? Most memorable, I think. Uh, Besides the building. Yeah, that's the most memorable is uh, the being buried alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it had trouble breathing, and uh, eventually they dug me out. But that was, uh, I was said my prayers and never thought I'd see the daylight again. Uh, being buried alive is a frightening thing. And, and uh, big, heavy bricks on you and dirt. And, and if you tried to move, it would get tighter. 
So I said, what am I doing, giving up? And I went like this. Oh, it just tightened all around me. But you don't want to try and move because it would just tighten. The, the dirt would move in, you know what I mean? And so we stayed. But out of 48 men, four came back out of that. That was the wheat field. Yeah. Uh, I want to know, sir, um, you mentioned that you guys got into skirmishes. I, I'm not hearing you. You mentioned that you guys got into skirmishes. I mentioned what? That you got into skirmishes. Skirmishes? Yeah. You being a demolitions man, you're also equipped with an M M1? Sure. Everybody had an M1. Can you talk to me about the kind of skirmishes that you remember fighting in? No, I don't. I don't remember. I remember I was hiding in a field, and the Germans came, and as soon as they got to the gate, I fired at them and ran, and I got away. I was lucky. I don't know if I hit any of them or not. Now you parachute, and and you see them in the plane when you jump, and that's the last time you see them. I think 48 went in and four came back. Mm -hmm. And two were with me. What was your most interesting experience overseas? I think it was that girl I met. What girl? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Besides that. Uh, most interesting overseas, I mean the war or London? The or, war, the war. The war, well, I don't know. I guess we blew up a couple of trains that were going into Germany or somewhere. And... Uh, what do you remember about the Battle of the Bulge? Can't forget it. The Battle of the Bulge was the um, where the Germans broke through, right? Yeah. Well, what they did is they took the 82nd Airborne and took us on one side, and the 80 and, and the uh, 101st Airborne on the other side, like that and cut the Germans in two. And I was there. They dumped me off in a truck, and we went with our gun and ammunition, you know. I think I captured somebody. I forgot. What was the cold like? What was what? The cold? Closed. Cold. I don't hear you. It was cold. Oh, oh, it was cold? I don't remember now. I think I had a German overcoat. I don't know. Do you have any experiences in which you felt alone or detached from the rest of the guys? Besides the field incident. Besides the wheat field? No, I guess not. The week feel I was alone. And how many days were you there? I, I forgot now. Twelve days total, but alone, I think, four days. 
Well, you were in a wheat field for 12 days? I think so. Take me through what you would do in a, a day is a long time. The Germans were all over the place. You so could, you would just lay down? I could kill a German, but I wouldn't be alive. So you were just laying down for hours? That's right. You'd do it too. It's amazing what you do to stay alive. Is this on now? Oh, I'm in trouble. It's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I was with two other men. But you. I don't think either one of them are alive. But you stayed down on that in that. How how big of an area? Where are we talking about? How big an area? How big was the field? Oh, I would guess uh, about 50 feet by 50 feet or something. I don't know. That's pretty small. Is it? Well, see, the, the, they would grow their crops there, and they would grow hedgerows. You know what a hedgerow is? Or all the way around it to keep the wind mm -hmm. and and so the birds and whatever. You were in the middle of all these hedgerows. Yeah. I was lucky because when the Germans came, they just shot into those hedgerows, figuring we would be in there. And we weren't. And that's where I would have been if they, but they came too fast. Well, I'd have been in there those hedgerows, you betcha. And they'd have killed me. But they came too quick, so we hit the dirt. Is this on now? Am I being recorded? I'm in trouble. <laughs> I'm glad we won the war, though. You helped win it. I did. I didn't do anything. <laughs> what were some of your most unusual experiences? Most unusual experiences. Boy, there's a lot of them, but I can't think of them now. Uh, I guess a couple of my buddies after D-Day were together in that wheat field somewhere. And uh, I found them. And one of them was doing something real silly, and I couldn't help but laugh in the middle of a war. You know, I didn't laugh out loud, but... Do you think about your war days often? No. Not at all? No, I try to forget them. Bet you. War is hell. It's no fun. Tell me, what was your specific role? My specific what? Role? Role? In the war, what to do? Well, I was a demolition man. You know what that is? Tell me. Well, a demolition man. Oh, right. There you have it right there. A couple stories there. And that's, and that's a lesson that, you know, really. Let me turn that off there. Now, that's a lesson, you know, these voices are, uh, you got to try to pull these stories out if you want any testimony anymore because it's amazing. You know, this guy's uh, 103 years old, you know. So I think he did pretty good for 103, you know, 104. Well, how long you, well, hang on. Hey, he's 104 years old. 104 years old. <laughs> Imagine that. 
104 years old. Looks pretty good, though. He doesn't look that old, but you can see his memories going. And here we said, I'm trying, I try to forget it. You know, in this case, trying to pull it out of him. You know, which I guess is good to try to get, you know, you know, because once these voices are gone, we have no real evidence anymore of, you know, of their testimony. We only have the, the, the video, and of course, you get people that narrate these videos and give their own conclusions to what happened. But, you know, you get the, you know, the real stories. You know, you you, you have to go by the, you know, the memory of these men now, and you can see how many times he, you know, he, he remembers being in that field. You know, that's the point I'm trying to make. He remembers that tr- trauma, you know, that traumatic experience. You know, and he, he switched up the stories. You know, three men, two men, two men, three men. You know, he keeps remembering that because obviously that was traumatic. You know, it, it was probably his buddies and. You know, they probably ended up dead, you know, but he kept repeating that, you know. And then, of course, being buried alive in the building, he probably blew up that building. And, you know, he probably, everybody died in that building. And he was one of the only survivors, actually, you know. So it's there, I read the comments and document, documents underneath and or it's attached to the stories here. He's one of the, you know, this guy actually was stormed, was the first paratroopers to storm the beach in Normandy. And, uh. Like he said, he was, uh, you know, one of the few to come out during that first trip in. And uh, so, you know, so uh, he, he, a lot of medals this guy's won. But, you know, and then the first guy was the uh, a Navy guy. Uh, you know, so these guys are heroes. These are the heroes, real heroes that children today should have. These are the heroes that, you see, I don't mind listening to that, you know, because other people may find it boring or they don't want to hear it. But you know what? I like listening to that because that's, those are heroes. Those are the true heroes that we should be paying attention to. You know, we'll go sit in a stupid, boring football game, or we'll go go to go someplace else. You know, do something stupid and waste time. But nobody wants to sit around listening to stories of heroes. You know, the real heroes, not Michael Jordan. You know, not not, not uh, Patrick Mahomes. You know, those those aren't heroes. That's why we're all screwed up in this country right now. Messed up. Nobody has time to listen to the testimonies of people that have sacrificed, that have spilt blood, that have given, and almost gave their life. And he said something very interesting. You'll do some interesting things. You'll do almost anything to save your life. You know, because you only have that, that your life is the most precious thing to you, really. You know, and you're willing to sacrifice it for everyone else. That's the thing. You're willing to sacrifice your life to help and serve others for this country, and yet we have people spitting on our flag. You know, we have people that don't have any respect at all. This guy could be walking down the street in Chicago and get robbed and beat up and mugged by a pack of freaking scumbags. It happens every day. They have no respect. They don't. When you see somebody that's you know that old, you don't know who that is or what history they have or what they've done, you know. But people do that all the time. We get these people, you know. It's 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 just filth. And Europe, saved Europe. <clears throat> I was watching a video earlier. This young black kid, you know, in the, the punching, punch, punch, punching people and everything, and, and they wouldn't do nothing to stop them. Because I guess it's so bad over there, the woke crowd and the, and the privileged now that you can't say anything anymore. You can't do anything. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Europe is just terrible right now. 
I mean, and those are the stories we're hearing. I can only imagine what it's like living over there, especially England. No, no, no Second Amendment. Australia, no Second Amendment. Oh, I mean, it's just Europe is, and, and and it's the New World Order went after Europe first because Europe was well, look, that's where the center of everything happens around the world. World War One, World War Two, right there, Europe, the center of it all. They get Europe, and then they start coming out this way. They almost got us. They almost got us all the way. But, uh, you know, we're still out there fighting. But I'm going to tell you right now, I, I wish the fight would hurry up because I don't want to be his age having to fight. You know, I don't want to have to be fighting at his age, this this new world order. If we're going to do this, if we're going to, if this is going to happen, if they're going to come try to take our guns or, or they're going to be, you know, coming around with SWAT teams or we're going to have tanks on our corners, you know, let's go. Let's get it going already. You know, you want to come out with another stupid pandemic? Pandemic. You know, that was just seeing the opportunity right there to pull the freaking the curtain back from the Wizard of Oz there. You know, the guy behind the curtain. That was our opportunity right there to seize the moment, to expose these people. Fauci, where's he at now, huh? Where's that criminal hiding? That maggot. You know? But, you know, they're, they're, these people, you know, they're, 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 you never see these people around. They're never around in the mix of the crowds. You never see these people. You never see judges. You never see these, uh, you never see uh, uh, certain people in society because they're all hiding. So they They've wronged so many people. They violated the Constitution so many damn times. You know, they they they, they gotta hide. So they're criminals. They're criminals. They have to have twenty Secret Service people protecting them. So they're criminals. So they've done something wrong. You know, they have to have all all that protection, that security. But yet, and that's why they want to take the guns away from people. They want to take it away. But they've got guns protecting them, though, right? That's okay. You know. What's their face there? That one that just died there. Uh, Feinstein, Diane Feinstein. You know, uh, $175 million she was worth. $180 million. You know, she went into, she went became a politician. Got first elected to office in 1975. 1975, she just passed away. When the planet Earth did not did suffer no loss. No loss at all when she went. To go see her master, Satan. Because that's where she went. Straight to hell, probably. I would if she had to have. Very evil. Diane Feinstein. And then her husband, uh, her husband there, she was married to of some liquid, of some uh, uh, money market firm that plays with money. <laughs> How convenient. We got them right now in Congress. We got them right now. We have all them people right now with their money market accounts and everything. All Wall Street brokers, all they're all got their hands in the pockets of us, and we don't do anything. Instead, I'm reading comments on Facebook, like my guy that I'm running against. Uh, some person wrote a comment and "Thanks for all you do. We're going to support you 100%. You like getting screwed, don't you? You like it. You like it. You love it. You know they love it. My great grandfather told me. He says, you know." He said, uh, Joey, he said, Joey, a uh, little boy, he says, you know, he says, one lesson, the hard lesson you're going to have to learn in life. You know, and you look at people that don't know any better. He says, the more you screw them, the more they love you. You know, and that's, that's true. The more people get screwed over, these zombie and sheep, they love it. They love it. These liberals, they love it. They love their rights being stripped away. They like getting screwed over. Why? 
Why? I mean, what made these people think like this? What turned a person into a coward? You know, because that's what they are, the cowards. Turned them into that. You know? I mean, people say, well, you're, you're a psychopath because you've been through hell. Or, no, 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 no. I just was never afraid. You know, you're a man. You stand up and fight like a man. Like You heard that guy, what he said in his testimony there. I want to fight him like a man in the war. I didn't want to do, do this, you know, to hide. You know, I, that's why I jumped out of planes. I want, you know, I wanted to go fight him face to face. Nowadays, nobody wants to fight like a man. Everything's everything's cowardness. Everything's hide, punch and run, hide behind keyboards, social media, call names. And then if you catch them, you catch them by accident. First thing they do is call nine one one. Help! Help! Officer! Press charges. Press charges. You know. Call the cops. Call the cops. Call the cops. Never in my life would I call the police for anything. Unless I needed their technological support for something like, God forbid, my kid were, you know, were missing or something like that. You know, something like that. Never, if I was in trouble, would I call the cops. You know? I would not want to. If somebody broke into my house right now and I had to handle business, I don't want to call the cops. Or if somebody's trying to break in, I don't. But I, I would have to to protect myself, wouldn't I? If I handled my own business and took care of it, I'd be I'd be in the wrong, wouldn't I? I'd be a, I'd have to go to jail under their statutory rules and their UCC law and their contracts. I couldn't do anything on my own. I don't want to call them. Leave them alone. I don't need them. Go keep the peace someplace else. That's their job. Keep the peace. You know this is you know this is my property, my land, my castle. I can handle everything over here all just fine. I don't need your help. I don't need your fire department. I don't need your ambulance. I don't need the police. I don't need nothing. I don't need your garbage trucks. I don't want nothing. I can handle everything over here just fine. But no, they make you. They make you use those services. You have to. Or it's against the law. You see? You don't have trash service over there at your house? No, you're supposed to. No, I'm not. I don't have to have trash service. I got, I'll handle it on my own, all right? I got plenty of land here. I know what to do with it. I know how to, you know, I'm smart enough to divide everything and metal and whatnot and chemicals and whatnot to dump and, you know. I don't need, that's probably, you know, well, we got to make sure, policy enforcement. You don't need to make sure. As long as I don't hurt anybody, it's none of your business what I do here. You don't need to see. I ain't going to write me up because I can't have a black garbage bag. Black garbage bag in my on my on my property that 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 could be seen that could be seen. Well, don't look, don't look. Okay, I mean, I can't have I can't have a black I can't have black garbage bags. That's a, that's against the codes, the codes. You know, I got I got a, a written warning from the uh, code enforcement officer because he came out to inspect my burn pile because somebody complained about my burn pile. You know, unreal. I still don't know. I wanted to know who complained. I asked them. They wouldn't tell me. Well, we can't give that information. What do you mean you can't give that information? I, I have a right to face my accuser. Nope, can't give that information, sir. It's our policy. Our policy, you know? I can't stand that policy crap. <laughs> give me a warning. Give me a warning about my burn pile. <laughs> so what happens after the next warning? 
did we write you a ticket? I said, then what happened? He goes, sir, don't need to escalate this conversation. I'm just telling you. (laughs) Don't serve me. And stay off my property, too, I told him. Stay off. You don't have any business here. I don't want you on my property. You're trespassing. We have a right to access when it's plain sight and plain view. We have a right. No, you don't. No, you don't. Stay off my land, please. Please. I'm saying it nicely right now. Stay off my land. Don't come back. Okay? Go do something else. Go catch a dog someplace. Do that. You know, go rescue a cat in a tree. Leave me alone. You know? <laughs> I don't answer the door when they knock, so he left a notice on the, on the door. I had to call him on the phone later on and ask him what, because he left his card and the slip or whatever, the letter on the door. Thing. They were knocking on the door. Boom, 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 boom. Loud, too. I almost answered because I was pissed off, but... I don't answer when they when a uniform or anything. I don't want to answer. I don't want to engage them. Just stay away. Stay away. I don't want no contact with you. Okay. Stay away. You guys screwed me over enough in this area. You guys done me wrong. Bat faggots. You know. Liars. You lie. You take an oath. You know. You're supposed to be honest. Swear an oath to uphold that constitution. You're supposed to uphold that oath. You swore. You swore. Were you crossing your fingers behind your back when you held up that hand and swore? Shame on you. Shame. I don't know. I don't know, people. I'll tell you what. I'm just sitting here analyzing right now just everything and uh, the past couple of weeks and everything, especially running here with this political up campaign. I'll tell you what, man. We're screwed up. This place is screwed up. This country is messed up, man. I don't. I just don't know if we could fix this. I mean, you can't fix stupid. I mean, excuse me, you can't help stupid. You can't fix broken because you got no parts. And it's just, I, I mean, no list can go on and go on and on and on here. I mean, it's just, I don't see it. I don't see anything getting fixed. I don't see any help. You know, I, I mean, it's just too few and far in between to help. I mean, it's, you can't burn anything. You can't do this. You can't have wood stoves anymore. You can't, you know, you got, you, you, I mean, electric cars they're coming out with. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's because there's no damn hardware shops around anymore. You got to go there to get your stuff. You know, you go in there and they got freaking battery operated power equipment now. You know, where the hell's the gas stuff at? Well, you got a little bit up over there in the corner saying, but we're trying to phase it out. What do you mean you're trying to phase it out? What are you talking about? Yeah, gas powered. What the hell am I going to do with a battery operated chainsaw? You know, what the hell am I going to do with that? You know, how, how am I going to run a business like that? How am I going to go out and, you know, do tree jobs with, with battery, battery-operated chainsaws? You know, I'm not going to go home and charge shit up and everything. Come on, man. What bull crap, man? You know, battery-operated weed eater, battery-operated mowers. I'm going to go mow, go mow 12 yards in one day. I'm going to mow 12 yards in one day on a battery-operated mower. You know that battery's going to die. And it ain't going to be powerful enough to do, a, you know, do these go, you know, hills and everything, go up a hill. You know, I, get, I got some yards, you know, back when I was doing this business, that were, you know, a couple acres. You know, take me three, four hours. You know, come on, man. You know, they're cutting into our livelihood. They're taking away our living, man. And nobody's saying anything. Nobody's angry. Nobody's complaining. You know, I must have argued with that guy in the store today probably about 
Oh, Lord, probably about a good 20 minutes. And finally he walked away from me. Sir, I don't know what to tell you. I just work here. That's their famous response. I just work here. You just work here, huh? You know, I don't know. I don't make the rules. That one, that's another one they always say. I don't know. I don't make the rules. You know, you know I just work here. I can't stand that. Oh, sir, I apologize. I apologize, sir. I apologize. I can't stand that either. You know, stop apologizing to me. I don't care. Your apology means nothing. It means nothing. You know, because you're not giving me no results. You're not giving me any positive results. I mean, what's going on here, folks? Come on, man. Battery operated every car. They're going to be coming out with cars pretty soon. Battery operated, I mean, electric cars. You know, want to tax us by the mile? Team Minute Cities? Come on, this is not making you angry. You're not worried when you go to bed at night? You're not, like, thinking about this stuff? I mean, you're not like, wait, what, what, what are we going to do? I mean, what's going to, five years from now, we're going to be in bad shape. I mean, nobody's worried. Huh. I mean, come on. Is anybody concerned? Instead, you want to talk about the next movie that's coming out. Oh, we got a wild, you know, the gumball last week. Sports. It's amazing how these people with sports, they love sports. They can rattle off stats and, and players' names and years and everything. But you ask them who the fifth president was, and they don't know. You know? I mean, come on. What's happened? What's happened to us? Aren't you sick and tired of sticking a shovel in the ground and it snaps in half? Well, you're raking leaves if you do and, you, and it breaks, the leaf rake breaks. $49 for a leaf rake and it snaps in half. Come on. What's going on, man? Doesn't that make you angry? It's got to. It's got to. You know, all this plastic garbage they've been building all these years now with the, you know, like me with the landscaping equipment. Garbage, this stuff that's coming out. Now, even the steel equipment's garbage, man. And steel used to be a good model, good equipment. You know, Toro, garbage. You know? I mean, if you buy that residential stuff, it's just pure garbage. Home light, you know, uh, uh, craftsman, garbage. That stuff's garbage. Stay away. Don't buy it. Do not buy it. Don't buy it because it looks good. You know? Don't do it. I mean, it's just that the stuff is garbage, man. Ryobi. Ryobi. Pure garbage. If it's not a Robinson or a, or a Steel, you, I mean, you know, like I said, even that's going to hell now. But if it's not a Robinson or a Steel or a, or a commercial Toro, uh, you do, you don't buy it for equal uh, well, if you're because springtime's coming up and anybody out there is doing lawn work or yard work don't buy that stuff. Home light, <laughs> don't buy it. Uh, Echo, Echo, garbage, man, pure garbage. You know, the Echo backpack blower. I had one of those ones. Freaking thing was a piece of junk. You know, worthless. But yeah, man. I mean, but that's what I'm saying, though. But this—that's the stuff they got out there. Pure nonsense. Even our money—they—they—they they, they started making our money years ago. I remember when it, with, we used to have silver quarters? Did away with that in 1965. Copper pennies, 1982. Did away with that. I mean, come on. Now they—now they just—it's garbage. Everything's garbage. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I just, I, all I can try to do is rally people, try to wake people up, 
and try to inspire people to go out there and take the initiative to do the right thing. And believe me, I'm not trying to tell people to go out there and do anything radical or do anything to hurt anybody. All I want to see people do is get a little activism underneath your belt and go out there and just be proactive to try to change things that are around you and change the situation that we're facing right now because we're all facing the same situation together. We're all in this boat together. It's all going to affect us the same way in the end. We're all going to end up in the same damn place if we don't fix everything. You know, it's going to it's going to hurt us. They're trying to hurt us. You got to try to wake up and do the right thing. And I know most of the people that call into this show or listen to this show, they are awake. Most of the people on alternative media and the podcasting, you know, business here, or people that listen or contribute, or even the callers are just the people that listen. You're pretty much awake. You've been listening to all these shows. You know, some better than others, some not. But still, you're awake. You know what's going on. And the numbers out there, the people that we have that listen just on this network alone should be enough to make some sort of difference out there to fix things, to come together. I mean, surely just don't call into these shows just to complain and not do anything when you wake up in the morning or, you know. I mean, come on. 657-383-0616 is the phone number if anybody wants to make a comment or wants to talk here. Uh... Uh, if you want to say anything here uh, tonight on this late, late, late show that I'm doing, you know, I just had, I just had to, had to. I was sitting around doing nothing, you know. I got tired of freaking filling out envelopes for the campaign stuff, and made enough copies today, and I went through two things of toner. That's another thing, copiers, man. Freaking t- fifty copies, and damn toner runs out already. You know, ridiculous. And that stuff is not cheap either. You know, <laughs> what happened to the days when you had a printer? Right? And you could just print. You just keep going. Remember you had the ribbon printers? Remember those printers? You could just print, make a thousand copies? Oh, what's going on in the chat room here tonight? Let's see what we got here going on in the chat room. All right, here. Just people talking, I guess, huh? I bought I bought a battery-operated weed eater, caught it on fire on the first day. Yeah. Had an electric weed eater, caught on fire, used it for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. It's garbage, man. <laughs> Pure garbage. Imagine the cars. What happens when the electric cars come? I mean, look, I mean, look at the homelessness in this country, too. You go out to California, the Southwest. I mean, oh, my Lord. It's out of control. We should be ashamed of ourselves as Americans. I mean, how can we not take care of each other and help each other out? Or is people are people even worth helping out anymore? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like I said, this country is in sad, sad shape. Uh, we got a couple of people with their hand up here, so let's take the first caller here. Go ahead. Nine oh nine. Hello, Joseph. It's Suzette. Oh, hey, how are you? That's a friendly voice. How are <laughs> All you? All right, thank you. <laughs> Um, all I have to say for now, anyway, in the in the uh, wake of the CBDC digital currency coming in, is we it's been able to been staved off or at least hold off anyway. What you can do for listeners, tell your friends, tell your families on Fridays, it is Cash Friday, hashtag Cash Friday, and okay. Everybody just uses cash only. No debit cards, no credit cards, no nothing. So that way it's seen, um, it shows in the marketplace 
that there aren't any digital transactions. It's just cash transactions, and they can't trace those. I like cash that idea. And, and it's easy. It works. Yeah. Yes, it's easy. Anybody can do it. Just remember just to use cash only, and, and that's it. I mean, something as simple as that, and on, on Friday, every Friday, basically, um, it's been do people have been doing it, and so um, yeah, it, just keep doing it. it. Just cash Fridays, and then you know if we can move into the weekend. You should use cash as much as possible anyway. Okay. But um, but there is a a particular day that's been assigned to affect the markets. So cash Friday, okay. or hashtag cash Friday. So if you're on, I like X, that. I like that. Yeah. How's um? Yeah. How far off? How far off are we from this digital currency? What's the latest word on that? I, that's one thing I have not kept up with, you know, for the past couple of months actually. What's the word? Do you have any? Well, I might blow your mind with this, but you know how we've all been talking about everything being by design. Okay, so you had the COVID yep. virus come in, then you had George Floyd happen, and George Floyd protesters were allowed to go out there and do their thing, but anybody else, no, they had picked. Basically, they had shut down businesses, small and pop, mom and pop, and then they got to bigger businesses. But here's the deal. There are 13 um, federal banks, um, the re uh, federal reserves, okay, um, the branches yep. that they have. There's only um, – so there's 12, but then there's the one head. And in each of those cities where those cities were burnt down and also had the most COVID deaths, um, also lost the most small businesses and can be tied to each one of those cities having a bank that connected a chapter um, to the Federal Reserve yep. Bank. Now, Oakland, San Francisco, where now it's basically desolate as far as any type of business goes, guess what's because the developers had picked up all that property for cheap because those businesses went out, you know, are out of business. Yeah. The developers have purchased those. They're going to be building smart cities. There's smart grids there. And those cities, Democratic oh, cities. Makes and, sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And then they <clears> can start, uh, start. Uh, what do you call it? Rolling out the, um, the uh, digital digital currency. And yep. so, we still have some time because oh. they haven't they haven't built anything yet. They're still buying, um, and getting that set up. But yeah, all those are interconnected. And I just when I found that out, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how 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 much perfect could it be as far as okay, we're going to start at A and go to you know D or F. We'll complete this section. Once this is done, then yeah. we'll move on to this. And so yeah. So you so think Oakland, Oakland, yeah, Oakland, California, that area, that that those are probably the first model rollouts for the digital currency. You think, huh? Because that would make oh, sense with the governor they got out there. That and New York. So New York, what in yeah. New York you had. Um, Social media companies that had hired, um, oh, like Google, they hired a bunch of techs and to um, roll out AI, to program AI. I mean, a bunch of them last year. Okay, so those same uh -huh. amount of techs that they hired, because they don't need them anymore because they have the AI in place with the algorithms, algorithms all in place and ready to go. So they just basically fired everybody that they had hired last year. And the, <laughs> wow. What? Yeah, so basically Man. useful idiots. But, you know, oh, yeah, I have tech skills and this and that, and I'll write the programs and make them, you know, programs so they'll start learning by themselves. And so they just basically learn themselves out of a job. 
And, um, oh, you know, that's man. what's happening on that. And, yep. And that's oh, just six well, months, But, yeah, all that's verifiable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All that no, I know your thing. You know your thing. Crazy. That's why I wanted to ask you, too, your advice. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, I'm running for, you know, the North Carolina House of Representatives in my district here. And the primary, uh, well, the polls are already open early voting now. And they close uh, March 5th. That's the final day. And then, of course, there's nobody running in opposition other than the guy in my party that's running against me. So this is going to decide the race, actually, because nobody, there will be no election in November. Which, uh, So it's just me and this guy that's running in the primary right now. So if I beat him, I'll win the office. But my main point, what I'm trying to get at is you know your thing as far as the state. I always ask for people's advice because, you know, that's the people. If you can't, you know, you always go to the people for information, like Lincoln said. So what um, – you know what? What do you think, as a, uh, as me being a legislator, I should uh, tackle first, or would be a good idea to tackle as a lawmaker to get the ball rolling to try to restore our republic? Well, first I would, um, I'd kind of hang out for at least a month and walk around and listen to the buzz as far as who's who's on what side of the fence. Truly, you know, you have people okay. who are truly trying to fight for our. For our republic and you have others that are ready just to make a deal and you can hear them in the halls you know the talk and yep. the whispers and you can ask questions you know just kind of vaguely kind of get a layout a feel of the place first um who's going to be my enemy can, yeah yeah <laughs> and your allies you know who you can actually yep. bring something up to to where they're going to actually care about what you're saying rather than just blow you yep. off and then from there you can start moving in um and looking thinking about the things that you wanted looked at when you were just a regular citizen instead of a servant to the yeah. citizens and um and start there you know things so you know okay. people care about but didn't speak up about but um that really you know stuck a bee in your bonnet so to speak yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know there are other people out there that feel that same way so you just start moving from there that would be my how i would do it but i mean you know once you get there, I've yeah. never been there, so I can't really say. Yeah, no, um, I know, I know. Well, I just know that you're <laughs> awake and you know, you know, you know, understand this. And for, when I mean awake, what I mean is by people who understand the Federal Reserve and understand, because I think that's one of the most important issues and enemies that we have is the Federal Reserve and the central bankers. You know, that they can, you know, mm-hmm. they control our money. When you control people's bartering system, <laughs> you know, the way we live is pretty much we're, we've lost, you know. So right. I believe attacking the Fed, the head of the snake. So you know about that, right. so, so if that, yeah, you know. and if that's your biggest thing that you that's really been bothering you, and you know your people and your state are would be thrilled to have you um, work on as far as their arm Monetary. into your state, basically their hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would start then researching the states. There are two of them um, that have basically uh, isolated themselves and insulated themselves at the same time, which was brilliant against the digital currency so if anything at at the very least you can do that for your state if not basically you know take down the federal reserve somehow you'll at least be able to protect your state so that would be number one you want to research those two states and how they came about doing that what they did to do it and how to get it done and um and just follow that role model and and do it for your state get people on board your your um co-legislators there to uh, yeah. climb on board and co-sign. Well, you and know, the, the Real ID there, Act. Huh? The Real ID Act, was a, the Real ID Act was a, is like one of the first introductions, too, because the Real ID Act 
is they want, you know, they get that microchip going. And that's where you put yeah. all that microchip into uh, everything, you know? I mean, yeah, right. anything, take away our sovereignty. <laughs> yeah. Man. But just really, I mean, right now, what's hot on the on the hot plate there is that is that digital currency. So if there's anything that you can do um, to, you know, isolate your your state from that and and protect it from that, um, my gosh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the two Minnesota, but South Dakota, Dakota? and uh, yeah, I, South Dakota. Saw, I, I heard South Dakota. Yeah, South Dakota Minnesota, and. I want to say Minnesota you could be right. too. Yeah. But I know I know there's sure. two states that now that um, can do transactions in gold, except gold for currency, um, and then I know there's two states that had um, had basically protected themselves from the digital currency. So um, I would start researching those and, and looking okay. into that. And All right. All we'll right. All right. Well, real quick, we'll get some constituents on board. No problem. Yep. You know. Okay. Uh, real quick, are you, you still doing your show? You still do your show in the afternoons? Um, I'm trying. I I haven't been well, so I haven't done it oh, for oh. two weeks. Um, I want to. Oh, I what, what happened? What happened? Don't mind me asking. Well, yeah, yeah, dad and uh, okay. issues with my legs and stuff. I, you know, okay. <laughs> my legs don't work. Gotcha. Understood. I'm still working yeah. through that. So, um, but um, yeah. I got a lot of information. God, I wish I could get out there sometimes, and it's just I can't. I can't get the energy. To I know. Do it. Done the research. That's what I felt like tonight. You know, <laughs> you want to take advantage <laughs> of the opportunities they give us with this internet and the information war that's out there. And you read these stories, mm-hmm. and you do your research, and you're like, you just want, and you got a podcast show, and you're like, well, let me record it. You know, <laughs> and, and you know, yeah. you try to get something out there. And then, you know, in World War Two, you know, I just it means a lot. You know, because I think that's one of the last great generations that we've had where people could you know that had you know of course we had bad things going on in the country back then and you know and and we always had crime and we had uh, racism and whatnot and and i understand that but still the people back then were were men of courage people of courage all people all the people all the different races they had courage and they had family values back then not like today you know absolutely absolutely in fact i don't believe they even know what they stand for. Uh, if you ask any of them, you know, what is it that yeah. gets you up every morning? What do you stand for? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait I mean, a minute. That's what I'm saying. Nobody fights. Let me do it in there. Anybody out there want to fight anymore? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everybody's scared. You know? It's everybody's scared, yeah. like I was saying. You know, get up there and fight and, and, and do something with your life. You know, I mean, you don't want to wake up one day and be old and gray and say, man, I wish I had a chance to do that. I wish I, man, I wish I would have done that. You know, I, I mean, that's, I, I just tap, seize every moment you can, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> and for goodness sake, don't wear your pants so tight. Maybe your balls will drop and your voice will drop, so it's not so high. Yeah. You're not supposed to have higher voices than women. Come on, good grief. Maybe the testosterone will actually yeah. circulate them. <laughs> oh, Lord, I know, I know. Oh, but today you can't tell anymore. <laughs> you can't tell who's, who's, who's who. I mean, literally, even the straight ones. That's true. <laughs> I probably, you know, I was at food line in the grocery store, and, and, and I was going through the line. I looked up, and I said, whoa, who are you? 
You know, it, it, it was like a, between a man and a woman. I didn't know what it was. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know to say thank you, ma'am or sir. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's terrible. <laughs> That's, That's a rough situation to be put into. I never thought I'd live this long. <laughs> yeah. All well, right. Well, anyway, thanks for the call. I wanted to mention that. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Have a good night. Appreciate uh-huh. it. I'll All you right, you too. <laughs> All right, thanks. All right, well, that was Suzette there. Uh, uh, good call there. Uh, always like taking I've seen a couple of private callers, but I don't know who they are, so trolls, but uh, possibly this late at night, unless I know who you are. Um, unless, Sarge, I don't think it's Sarge. I don't see him in the chat room, so. Um, but I don't want to ruin the show because, so, you know, it's a pretty good one. I got one more short story here. To, to uh, uh, handle here, and then if anybody wants to comment at the end, then please, you know, I mean, something's got to inspire you. Surely somebody's got something to say. I see a bunch of people on the line here, and uh, you know, I had about seven or eight people on the line there, and and two of you had your hands up and you went away. So where'd you go? You know, come on back. You know, this is your, this show is for you, basically. It's for the people to, uh, you know. Get their voices out to inspire. Like I said, like Suzette was just saying, even you know, and she's very knowledgeable. She knows her thing. I mean, she's on block, been on Block Talk for a long time, just like me, and uh, and she does her own uh, podcast also. Um, but uh, you know, this takes advantage of 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 the tools that we have today. You know that we that we may not have in the future because you just heard what she said about the digital currency stuff, and that's good. Friday, cash only, folks. Cash only. I'm going to start promoting that for now. I'm going to start putting it in my listing, too. Cash only. I'm going to start putting it on Facebook, social media. Cash only on Fridays, and hopefully we can expand that, too, because that does hurt the New World Order. You know, and you, you know, they charge fees for that stuff, too, digital currency and, and stuff. Uh, when you go to the ATM and take out money or something like that, you know, they charge you or, you, or they charge you a transaction fee or whatnot. So, hey, man, you know, it's anything we can do to fight back, anything. It is better than nothing, I think, in my opinion. Uh, anybody put press one now? If you want to get up there and get get your uh, thoughts in, if not, I'm gonna play just one last story here, and then uh, we get ready to wrap. World War Two. I just think it's very important to honor these people. You know, I well, you heard what I said earlier. You know, I really believe that. You know, without these people, you know, they're dying breed. They're all just like they're all about all gone. I'll get to, no, actually, I'll tell you the numbers of what's left, actually, after I play this. Of 1942, uh, my first assignment was with the 80th uh, Division, which is called the Blue Ridge Division, because it, the, the, the past is a picture of the Blue Ridge. It was a uh, Army Reserve unit, and mostly that ship was made up from people from from Virginia, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. So my first assignment was there, and they were stationed at uh, Camp Forest, Tennessee. And so I was there, uh, I arrived there as a private uh, about the 7th or 8th of August of 1942. And I was assigned to uh, a headquarters company of an infantry battalion, 318th Infantry Regiment. Now, were you drafted or did you enlist? Well, I drafted, but most people don't understand what that means. Uh, actually, uh, I was a very, uh, I spent two years in the Civilian Conservation Corps, so when I went to college, Davidson College, North Carolina, I was a 20-year-old freshman. That was pretty old. So in February of 1942, I registered for the draft. 
In early March of 42, I received a congressional appointment to the U.S. Naval Academy, which I accepted, of course. And then I happened to think that really, uh, I don't know anything about the Navy, but I had a year of college ROTC Army, and I had something back in those days, which most people never heard of, called Citizens Military Training Camps, where I went to Fort Benjamin Harrison, uh, Indiana, for two summers to to be trained. So when I joined the agent division, I'd already gone through basic training and advanced training. So uh, promotions came very fast. Uh, in four months, I was a staff sergeant in the agent division. When did you go from enlisted man to officer? Well, um, uh, I think sometime around maybe early November of 1942, when I was with the 8th Division, and the, one day there was a, a notice on the board that said the following men will, not may, will apply for infantry officer candidate school, and my name was there. And so uh, in about a week or so, I was called before a review board, and I, you know, went before a review board, and then um, uh, I guess about a, a month later, the uh, first sergeant, with the regular army first sergeant, went home on Thanksgiving, and uh, so the company commander made me the acting first sergeant, and promoted me to staff sergeant. And by the way, the regimental commander called me in and said, I want to congratulate you. You're the first man in the regiment to be the staff sergeant. But anyway, a few days after I got promoted to staff sergeant, the regimental adjutant called me. And he said, uh, uh, why aren't you in OCS? And I said, sir, I, I, I applied for it like I was supposed to. And I, I said, I assume I didn't clear the board because they had you cleared the board. You should have been the OCS a month ago. Now, that company commander won't release you. And I will so on December the 24th, 1942, I reported to Fort Benning, Georgia, for the officer candidate school. When I was commissioned, I was sent to Camp Roberts, California. And there they had an officer school. It was for captains and lieutenants. Uh, the idea was, uh, you know, you're going to go through the Pacific. So we're going to have a four-week course here at Cape Campbell, uh, Camp Roberts, California, to prepare you for combat in the Pacific. So my first assignment, I was a student there. And then when we graduated in four weeks, instead of my going to the Pacific, I became an instructor in the school. So I was an instructor in uh, platoon and infantry tactics for one year. So I had that training as an instructor. And then uh, instead of going to the Pacific at that time, they sent me to the Army Infantry Advanced Corps back to Fort Benning for another 13 weeks. Actually, throughout my career, uh, I always preferred uh, to be in something in training. You know, in, in the battalion level, it's the S3, that's training. In the division level, it's the G3, you know. And, of course, that carries enough training. So whenever I had the opportunity, uh, if I had a, a choice, I'd ask for an assignment, which put me in the training business. So, but I, I, loved, uh, I loved training, and I enjoyed uh, teaching people how to do various things. When did they ship you out? Well, uh, after I got back from Fort 
uh, Benning at the Officers Advanced School uh, came back in about October, and I was there for about a month, and they sent me to the Pacific. And I never will forget when we arrived at San Francisco to board a ship, the headline in the newspaper was, Jap subs off coast. So we got aboard this uh, personnel transport, and they didn't tell us where we were going to go, but and three weeks later or so, we landed at New Maya, New Caledonia, which was a French possession on the north, the northeast coast of uh, Australia. And I was there for about uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, we had a replacement uh, train center there. In other words, if you didn't know where you're going to go to, you went to uh, you went to New Maya, New Caledonia, to the train center. Then it is. Units in the Pacific needed people, they call back there and they send you to this. So I was there about two weeks, and one day with about 10 other lieutenants, we were told to go down, we boarded a cargo ship, and oh, I don't know how many days later, we landed on the island of Espiritu Santos, which is in the South Pacific of the New Hebrides. And there I was assigned to the 27th Infantry Division. And that's the division you would. That's the division I was with in combat, actually. When I arrived on Espiritu Santos, I was assigned as the leader of the 1st Platoon I Company, 106th Infantry Regiment, 27th Division. So I had, a, I had an opportunity before we went to Canal to train with that platoon for about uh, three months, which was wonderful because I got to know the men, they got to know me, and uh, uh, I told them I was a staff sergeant when I got commissioned. And boy, they all one of us. So we had a great rapport with those 29 men. Unfortunately, we all thought before we went to combat that we'd get our authorized strength. At that time, the infantry rifle platoon had an authorized strength of 40 men. I had 29. So when we went to Okinawa, uh, I had 29 men instead of 40. And they were mostly 18 and 19 year old good Americans. and. I was a senior man at the platoon at 23 at that time. Well, we had, we had all kinds of well, from what we expected. Of course, we didn't. I didn't know the big picture. Of course, I was an infantry platoon leader as first lieutenant. We didn't know the big picture, but later the big picture was that the Japanese were defending Okinawa with about 75,000 individuals. That they also, of course, Okinawa civilians, which you know. The history of Okinawa goes back a long ways, too. When the Japanese annexed Okinawa in uh, 1875, if I recall correctly. Uh, so they had not only the Japanese army there, but they conscripted a lot of young men. So the estimates, this is from the higher-up estimates, but there's about 75,000 people. It turned out there was 110,000 there. So what the uh, Admiral Nimitz, who was the commander-in-chief of the Pacific. And just for a matter of orientation, the sort of the northern part of the Pacific was all under the Navy. And in the southern parts, like New Guinea and Philippines, was for General MacArthur. Okinawa came under Admiral Nimitz. But anyway, on the 1st of April of 1945, the 10th Army Division, commanded by Army Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner, Start landing on Okinawa. And what he did initially, there was, by the way, on Okinawa, there was four army divisions. There was the 
seventh, the twenty seventh, the seventy seventh, and the ninety sixth. And there was two Marine divisions, the first and the sixth Marine division. So on uh, April the first, nineteen forty five, was uh, the two Marine divisions and two Army divisions assaulted at Okinawa. And they went into very little resistance. Well, little, I say, compared to what they run into in other islands, which we invaded, you know. But it turns out that the Japanese commander there had decided to descend the south. Okinawa, by the way, is 60 miles long and about two to 18 miles wide. And the two-thirds of the island is all hilly and brushy and scrubby and, and not related very well to defend. So the, the Japanese descended the, 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 the southern one-third of the island. So, uh, but the the uh, defense initially at the landing was very, basically very light. Everyone was surprised because there was very little resistance, which was unusual because normally when uh, the Marines or the Army had invaded an island, there was terrific uh, uh, casualties going back to Iwo Jima, for example, for one. So anyway, the, the by the end of the first day, we had gone in, across the entire island, so we cut the island in two. On the east side of Okinawa was the Pacific Ocean, and on the west side was the East China Sea, so we cut off the, you know, well, anything in the north, uh, Japanese, we got we we got a line, the, so, and anything in the south, we're ready to go. And so it it turns out that the uh, the, the commander of the Japanese forces had decided to defend the south because the terrain there was more suitable for defense. And there were some old old castles like Shuri Castle you may have heard about. There was a place for the good defensive position. So instead of 75,000 people there, which we expected, there was over 110,000, and that kept increasing as the battle went along. So after about the two army divisions headed south, and, and after on about day three, they ran into very, very heavy resistance. And the main defensive line ahead of them was called Kakazoo Ridge. And that was primarily the responsibility of the 96th Division to take Caucasus Ridge. But it turned out my division, the 27th, was initially the floating reserve. But when the 96th Division ran into a lot of trouble on Caucasus Ridge, they finally secured part of it. Then my division, the 27th, went in to relieve the 96th. And at that time, I was the first lieutenant commanding the infantry rifle platoon of 29 men. So we relieved the 96th Division on this place called Caucasus Ridge. And um, we had been told that the Japanese attacked overnight around 2 a.m. But uh, we preferred good defensive positions. They did attack overnight about 2 a.m., but we always repulsed them. And we thought to think that they must have been drunk because you could hear them coming, yak, 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 and we found out that they probably were drunk on sake. <laughs> Well, anyway, uh, one thing we found out very shortly was that even though they attacked at, say, 2 a.m. And, and, and at night, they'd leave behind some snipers. And, of course, uh, the, the policy was in the Pacific that the U.S. Army Division did not attack at nighttime. They did not attack at nighttime. Um, what they would do 
in the morning we get start moving around. They had snipers that were left in the area and they start shooting at us. So on about the maybe the second morning or the third morning as we were there, the company commander said, uh, by the way, Luke. That's the name Luke. My name is Lucas. So in the Pacific battles, uh, we didn't go by rank. I was not a first lieutenant. Nobody was a sergeant or a captain or a major. And um, so we went by we went by uh, we went by a, a nickname. And also we didn't wear insignia on our collars like they did in the in the, in the European theater. So uh, I, I was never called lieutenant. I was always Luke. You know. So anyway, uh, the company commander said, "Well, Luke, you take a patrol out and see if there are any." Japanese snipers that came here overnight. So I got uh, 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 three of my, my platoon members. And as I was getting ready to move out, we overnight we had been uh, spent with us was a second lieutenant who was a forward artillery observer. He spent the night with us. And I was moving out. He said, um, uh, can I go along with you? I want to get some combat experience. And I said, well, you know, just fall into the rear. Well, we'd gone out maybe a couple hundred feet, and there was a very, very loud explosion. It knocked me down. Two men behind me were knocked down. The only man standing was the scout in front of me. But I heard these moans and crying and really terrible noises. And I was, of course, in shock because I'd been knocked down too. And I was trying to find what was going on. I looked down the hill, and there was this forward, second lieutenant, forward observer. And uh, both of his legs had been blown off just below the knees. And he was lying with his head uh, down the hill. And I, I didn't realize what was going on. I finally went down to him, and I seen what was happening. He had two legs blown off. So I took my, my belt and made a turn on one leg, and I took his belt and made a turn on another leg. And I told the, the one man of the three who was still standing to go back to the company get an aid person with a stretcher to come up and take this man back there. And so when uh, that stretcher took the man back, and one of the men said to me, look, your back is covered with blood. Now, I didn't realize that my whole back had been shattered with, sh with shrapnel. And so uh, I took it. So anyway, we, we walked back to the battalion aid station, I guess, I don't know how far back, but we finally got back there. And I said to the battalion surgeon who was, dressing me, taking the sweat roll out and dressing me. I said, now, please don't report this because I had a brother who was in Europe and he's seriously wounded and he's in the hospital. And I said, I don't want my family, my mother and father, to know that the other son, the only other son, has also been wounded. So I saw him about a month later and he said, well, look, he said, I look at the regulations. I have to report the fact that you're wounded. So anyway... That resulted in my receiving the Purple Heart. I've often felt very guilty about that because here's a man who lost two legs. And when he said, can I join you, I could have said no. I could have said no. And he had two legs today. So that's always been a very heavy thing against me. But one good thing is I found out years later that he did survive. He did survive. So I, But uh, I could have said no, you know, you can't do it. And... Uh, what kind of fighters were the Japanese? Well, the Japanese uh, were good fighters, particularly 
when they were descending a hill or a ridge or some uh, some objective that we tried to take. Uh, they were probably the of all the defenses units in the South Pacific and the Pacific. Japanese were probably the best at defense because they they dig down down hundreds of feet, hundreds of feet, hundreds of feet. And so you even have artillery in there, and you, you know, and they didn't touch them, didn't touch them, you know, not at all. I can remember on Kakazoo Ridge, we used to look over to the escarpment, and they had, had tunnels dug from the far side, and they come up, and their face of the tunnel was facing us about maybe 1,500 yards away on Kakazoo Ridge, and they'd fire at us. And of course, you know, sound travels at the rate of 1,086 feet per second. So when we see uh, the flash, we start counting. And then, however, how many seconds we got, then we call artillery. But our artillery come in, they just go back in the hill. So they're very good at that. But the Japanese, uh, I think the most unusual thing about the Japanese, which I didn't understand until much later when I got to Japan, uh, in September of 1945. Sometimes you come face to face with a Japanese soldier. Instead of him fighting, you kill himself. He had a, they had grenades, and their grenades were different from ours. They had these around and They killed himself. Well, I didn't understand that why until I got to Japan and began to study the Japanese as a, as a nationality in their history. And found out, of course, the Emperor Hirohito you know, was at that time the Emperor of Japan. And he was the supreme commander of the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. And when you were born in Japan at that time, you took an oath that you would descend and die for the Emperor. So the feeling I got was that they would kill themselves, they're dying for the Emperor, then have me kill them. And so that, that surprised me. And then uh, uh, I, I don't know, but since... At nighttime, when they attack, you could, you could hear them coming, you know. They, yeah, you know. And someone said later that they were high on socking in Japanese liquor or some kind, I guess. And you could hear them coming. So, but uh, they were they were very good. They they uh, uh, very few of them surrendered. I, I, did, I didn't. Um, my outfit. Um, uh, we didn't take any, any Japanese prisoners because they would they would rather die. So they were very tenacious. They were good defenders, and um, you know you uh, you had to kill them, take uh, a ridge or a, a strategic point that they probably wanted you to take. So they they were good fighters. They were good fighters. But uh, uh, again, uh, I was surprised and didn't know for many years, months later, why they killed themselves. The big thing on Okinawa that was really uh, significant in our being able to advance. The U.S. Navy had the largest uh, number of aircraft carriers, battleships, destroyers, cruisers, PT boats than they had any place else in the Pacific. So when I, like, a, we wanted to get some, some far. We, we First, we get our own mortar far. And we would get our own division artillery far. But when there was a forward observer, forward artillery observer, observer 
and you tell him that you wanted to put some fire on a certain place, uh, you might get Army uh, artillery or you get Navy gunships. And, I mean, they could really throw in a lot of stuff. So I would say that um, in many areas we were able to uh, conquer a range or something like that because of the naval gunfire that we got, because they, they were big bombs, you know, they were really sharp a lot. So, uh, of course, the Japanese, again, were on the south part of Okinawa, particularly uh, some of the old uh, buildings that were there on the ground. The Japanese won the ground there a couple hundred feet. And, uh, of course, they took uh, from, well, the island was supposedly called secured on the 23rd day of June, but that don't mean a great deal, of course. It just means that uh, we were in control. The Japanese, again, had... All right, all right. We'll wrap that one up right there. All right, uh, let's see here. Here is today a total of... Hang on one second. All right, here we go. All right, today there is a total of... uh, out of 100 and, uh, excuse me, uh, 16, 16.1 million Americans served in World War II. Today, <clears throat> there is 119,550 left. As of today. So, uh, let me see here. 70 million people died in World War II. Uh, what the heck's this number? I just want to make sure that number is correct. No, that's not from 2020. No, no, 2020 there was 300,000 left, and 2024 is 116,000. So uh, they say um, there. Uh, let's see. It says the men and women who fought and won this great conflict are now in their 90s or older, according to U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, 119,550 of the 16.1 million Americans who served. <coughs> um, Probably they'll all be gone. I'm trying to see when they'll all be gone. Projected number of living U.S. veterans 2036. That says uh, says, uh, 21. There were over 200,000 living in the United States. Okay. Oh well, that's worldwide. Okay. All right. So um, all right. Well, wow. So they'll all be gone. They'll all be gone in about another four years. Next four years they'll be they'll most likely all be gone. So wow. So, you know, so it's three years, two years, let's see, two years. Yeah, four more years, they'll all be gone. But as I said, well, it could be in a couple of years, they'll all be gone. They're dying off at a rate of like like 100 a day now. Imagine how 100 of them are dying a day, 100, 150 a day, uh, World War II veterans. Wow. You know, well, they're getting old. You know, you figure a couple die in North Carolina, four, three or four die in New York. You know, it's just amazing, amazing. Wow. Yep, they'll all be gone. I'll be gone. And that part of history, folks, our history will be gone forever. So if you know a World War II veteran, if you know one personally, you know, uh, you know, just think, you know, that that part of history that is going to be gone. I remember when I was a kid, real quick, you know, I, um, I was out in Wisconsin on a dairy farm. I'm not calling the dairy farm. He's calling to the show. He was one a lot actually uh, before he passed away, and. um he had a dairy farm out in Wisconsin, and I, we saw all the farmers were, you know, they were about, they were like in their 80s, late 80s, and early 90s. And this is back in 1984, 1985. 
you know, I was a younger kid. And they all come to the farmers and they'd meet in the afternoon at, you know, some sometimes my uncle's farm, sometimes they'd meet at another farm, and they'd meet in the barn, in the back of the barn, and uh, have coffee and whatnot, and, or, you know, if they weren't doing field work and talking, talking. Well, a lot of these people, they were like, you know, there was one guy, he fought in World War One. actually, he was in World War One. He was uh, 86 or 87 years old, and, uh, you know, he was, and, uh, he was telling me, you know, I remember him telling me stories about it, so I just think, I think, wow, World War One. Imagine that knowing somebody, you know, back then. I wish he would have given me some of his antique souvenirs. Probably be worth money. <laughs> Man, maybe a sword from World War One or something. Man, but they're all gone. They're all gone. World One, World War One vets are all gone now. You know, because like I said, this is back in 1984, 1980, yeah, 1983, 84. I went out there and just go out there in the summers, and uh, they're in the 80s, mid 80s, so. Oh, man. And those farmers were stronger than me, man. Let me tell you, there was some strong son of a guns out there in Wisconsin. But, uh, yeah, crazy. So, uh, all right. So, anyway, um, anybody got something they want to say here real quick? I'm going to get ready to wrap up the show here. Like I said, this show was just basically just uh, a dedication. Just I felt, felt I, I don't know, I was watching something. I just felt like I should dedicate it to the uh, World War II vets out there that are still alive with us today, you know, 81, 80 years later. You know, you know, just uh, felt like I dedicated to them and uh, just uh, thank them for the, for that for the courage that they uh, demonstrated. You know, whether we agree with the war or not, or what enemy they were fighting. You know, obviously we just you know we think the Russians if we should have fought the Russians like Patton said. You know, uh, whatever have you, it, it doesn't matter because they answered the call of their country. They were dedicated. You know, to to answer the call because you know to go overseas and stand up against what they thought was tyranny and corruption and 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 evil, and they you know unselfishly they they took that call, you know to to fight. Now we know that you know basically our free our freedom was not in jeopardy at that time, but uh, we we you don't know what could have happened you know if we didn't get involved or what if England was defeated and Nazi Germany took over and then beat Russia. You know, would Hitler have stopped there? Would he have Would he have then gone after the United States? You better believe he would have came over here too. So I don't know. You know, you know, he, we might not be well liked by him. You know, so <laughs> you know, I don't know. I I never met the guy, and I don't know. You know, I never met met him, so I don't know what kind of regime they would have had. But all I can tell you is that you know, I like America and the Republic, and I like the Constitution, and I'm not giving the Constitution up. You know, for for national socialists, for anybody, for communism, for progressivism, for whatever you want to call it, I'm not giving up my constitutional republic. I believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone is endowed by their creator to, to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and not to have any type of government restraint or restrictions on them than to be held back from your pursuing happiness as long as you don't hurt anyone else or offend anyone else. Anyone else. This land right here, you should be able to, you know, live in peace and not have to worry about tyranny and never should have to sacrifice your liberties for security at any time ever. Just remember that. Let me see. Let me check the board here. I don't know if I got any calls or not. Let's see. Check the core. Anybody got their hand up here? Press 1 now. Get ready. Get ready. Wrap it up here. Uh, press uh, 657-383-0616. Press number 1 because we're going to be going into overtime anyway in about 10 minutes. I'm not going to stay on too much later. So I'm gonna get ready to wrap it up here. Um, one guy keeps putting your hand up and hanging up, and whatever. You must be a troll. I'm not gonna answer the phone, you jackass. 
I know what you're trying to do. I know I know who you are. Oh, man. All right, anyway. Let's see, what am I going to play here at the end here? Uh, let's see here. Somebody said, write me a message on Facebook. All right. All right, yeah, Civil War by GNR. Yeah, there you go. I want to demonstrate for decades of war. I had Green Berets on the other night. But, uh, well, how about this one here? We'll play this right here real quick. And then uh, we'll play Civil War by GNR. Hang on. If your killer instincts are not clean and strong, you will hesitate at the moment of truth. You will not kill. You will become dead, Marine. And then you will be in a world of shit. Because Marines are not allowed to die without permission. Neil Maggots understand. Sir! Tonight, your pukes will sleep with your rifle. You will give your rifle a girl's name. Because this is the only pussy you people are going to get. Your days of finger-banging old Mary Jane Rottencrotch through her pretty pink panties are over. You're married to this piece, this weapon of iron and wood, and you will be faithful. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you.